it's perfect, really, if you think about it. You know, we started off this morning without sound, and we have these hiccups along the way. And uh, I'm, I am so thankful that we can even meet this way. Um, some of you don't know, maybe don't realize how close we were to not being able to do this at all, that we had just weeks before things went into quarantine and stay at home and all that, uh, we had just started the video podcast and the audio podcast and getting the camera to where it actually worked and, and to be ready to not skip a beat and not miss a Sunday is pretty remarkable. I, I believe that the Lord set us up for that one. And anytime we have these little glitches and, and gaffes as we work forward, it just reminds me how, how do I put this and be nice? how truly incompetent we really all are. We work so hard in our lives to have competency in things and to be successful individuals and, and to take life by the horns and feel like we've got some measure of, of understanding and wisdom and knowledge and, and we get experience, we go to school for years and then people will work in the job force for years to try and, and get to that point of, of respect and success and you know, every one of us deep down inside have that thought from time to time, what if they all find out I really don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> you know what Jesus said? He said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He says, I am the true vine, verse five, John 15, you are the branches he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then he said this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Underscore that, highlight it, circle it in your Bible. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the reason right now that the world is striving and dividing and fighting and angry and despondent is that the world is apart from Jesus. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And when you can do nothing, despair sets in and hopelessness. And we live in a hopeless world in which the only answer is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word now to, to the Shemot, to Exodus, that you will teach us again how vitally significant it is for each one of us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to focus our hearts on you, Lord, that as we spoke about midweek, you are, I am, and there is no other. And who I am doesn't matter, who I am matters. And so this morning, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would surmount our technical difficulties and you would bypass our human frailties, come right into our hearts and help us to hear and know and be built up in what is true, what is right. And his name is Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your word and we're eager to hear in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we are in Exodus chapter five, continuing our journey through the scriptures. I don't know that we'll get done before Jesus comes. I hope not. I hope we don't get done this morning, but we're gonna go ahead and go forward anyway. Exodus chapter five. I just wanna read the last two verses of the chapter, and we're gonna go back and think this through together. Exodus 5.22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. At the age of 22, Charles Spurgeon almost quit the ministry. Now that's surprising. You've heard me, I'm sure, over the years. If you've been around here, you've heard me quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers, a stalwart voice of truth back in the late 1800s, a remarkable expositor of the word of God. Tens of thousands would attend his services just to hear a sermon from the great prince of preachers. And that was happening early on. He started his ministry, came to uh, his New Park Chapel at the age of 19 and was filling up the place. Well, we recognize it wasn't Spurgeon. It was the Lord and it was the word of truth that was drawing people. But three years in, 22 years old, and Spurgeon almost quit. There's an interesting article that tells the story. This is out of churchleaders.com from May 2015 by a guy named Christian George who writes, after three years in London, Spurgeon's burgeoning ministry had solicited envy from his opponents, admiration from the evangelicals, and criticism from the press. Well, that's no surprise. His wife of one year, Susanna, often hid the morning newspaper to prevent Charles from reading the critical headlines. On the evening of October 19th, 1856, it commenced a season of unusual suffering for Spurgeon. His popularity had forced the rental of the Surrey Garden Music Hall to hold the 12,000 people who were now seated inside, 12,000 Another 10,000 eager listeners stood outside the building, scrambling just to hear his sermon. The event constituted one of the largest crowds gathered to hear a nonconformist preacher, a throwback to the days of George Whitfield. Well, just after six o'clock, someone in the audience shouted, Fire! The galleries are giving way, the place is falling. Pandemonium ensued as a balcony collapsed. Those trying to get into the building blocked the exit of those fighting to get out. Spurgeon tried to calm the commotion, but to no avail, and his text for the evening was Proverbs 3, verse 33, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. He would never preach that verse again. An eyewitness recorded the cries and shrieks at this period were truly terrific. They pressed on, treading furiously over the dead and the dying, tearing frantically at each other. Spurgeon nearly lost consciousness. He was rushed from the platform and taken home more dead than alive. After the crowds dissipated, seven corpses were lying in the grass and another 28 people were seriously injured. The depression 
that resulted from this disaster left Charles Spurgeon prostrate for days. He said, even the sight of the Bible brought from me a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. The newspapers added to his emotional deterioration, Mr. Spurgeon is a ranting charlatan, they said. By all accounts, it looked as if his ministry was over. When Spurgeon ascended the pulpit on November 2nd, just two weeks later, he opened with a prayer. He said, we are assembled here, O Lord, this day with mingled feelings of joy and sorrow. Thy servant feared that he should never be able to meet this congregation again. How could God allow such a thing? Such a glorious moment for the preaching of his word and the teaching and, and the masses being reached just when everything seemed to be poised for such great success. Or as Moses said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Well, let's back up and consider the story. If you draw back to chapter Four, verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, that's Mount Horeb, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron, his brother, all the words of the Lord which he had sent him, with which he had sent him, and all the signs that he had commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. You may recall, if you heard Wednesday night, there were three signs. His staff would turn to a serpent and back to a staff. His hand would turn leprous and then return to its normal, healthy state. And water would be scooped up out of the Nile, poured out and would turn into blood as it splashed on the ground. So Moses and Aaron, they did these signs and the people, that is, the sons of Israel, there in Egypt, believed. And when they heard that the Lord was, was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Man, you can almost imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm. Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cares about us is concerned for us, has not forgotten us. And look at these signs, and Moses is his deliverer. And we're going to be saved. We're really going to do this. God is on our side. We're good to go. And so the enthusiasm must have been palpable. Chapter 5, verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, hear it as they said it. Remember I told you those small caps, the word Lord in small caps is Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H. So he literally said, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And I have no doubt that Moses had strong confidence in his words. Knowing he was sent by God, how could we have anything other than success? As I speak the very name of Yahweh, verse two, but Pharaoh said, who's Yahweh? Who's Yahweh? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. 
I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. This from a man according to Egyptian doctrine who was the incarnation of a god. The Pharaoh was supposed to be God in the flesh. God among us. The Egyptians saw his power as unlimited, his will was law, and his words carried the weight of divine force. If he spoke it, that was it. If you saw the old Yule Brenner uh, example of Pharaoh in the Ten Commandments, he would say, so let it be written, let it be done. Well, that's what the Pharaoh could do. That's the kind of power he wielded. And in fact, one commentator said he regards himself as Yahweh's superior. In response to Pharaoh's contemptuous retort, Moses and Aaron flinch. Note the difference in their words in verse three. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. How quickly they go from thus says the Lord to the God of the Hebrews and, and, and to please, please let us go. And he might get mad at us. I mean, what we see here is naked backpedaling. They're, they're, they're pulling back. No, no, Pharaoh's on to us. He's calling our bluff. Now, I will point out that the us here may be intended as a veiled warning when he says, or when they say that otherwise he will fall upon us. He may have intended that as inclusive of all Egypt. So Pharaoh, you gotta let us go or he's gonna fall on all of us and we're all gonna be in big trouble but it doesn't take, doesn't work. Pharaoh, remaining haughty and arrogant and prideful, responds in verse four, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of this land are now many and you would have them cease from their labors? And so the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen. Just a side note, the taskmasters were Egyptian. The foremen were Israeli or Israelite. So the foremen oversaw their own people, but the taskmasters were then over the foremen, and that was the structure of the work. And Pharaoh said to them both, the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw from their, for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go sacrifice to our God. He says, let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so they will pay no attention to false words. Wow. False words. Pharaoh's malevolence for this people is showing to the point that he labels Yahweh's call to worship false words. You know, from the earliest time, the enemy always attacks the word of God as false. Always goes after the word. 
The devil wants people to think that the Bible is either false or at a minimum, it's flawed. You really can't trust it. And so he seeks at every turn to undermine and he's been doing it since the beginning. Genesis chapter three, verse one, what did the serpent say to the woman? Indeed, has God say, said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did he really mean that? Of course, Eve's backpedaling already. Well, no, he just said, we can't eat from this tree or touch it. And what does Satan say? Oh, no, 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 no. Now I'm paraphrasing. If you eat from it, you won't die. Come on. God's word is not true, says the enemy. Psalm 58, verse four, says the wicked have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear. Second Peter chapter three, verse three, you may be familiar that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Mocking what? Following after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Come on, this word. False words, they would say. But Jesus said, John 8, 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear because you are not of God. And that's a, a very clear revelation. That is, if someone rejects this word as false, they're not of God, plain and simple. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. And therefore, when the word is spoken, they don't get it. They can't really hear it. And ironically, it's the liar himself who calls these words false. But don't forget, oh, don't forget from the bush to the palace to the brick pits, I am is here. I am is present. I am revealing to his people now in a profound way that he sees them, he hears them, he knows them. Then why doesn't he do something? Why does he let this stuff go on? Why did he step in and stop the deceit right then and there? Why doesn't he put an end to racism if he's here? Why does he allow lawlessness and deception and false narratives to permeate our world if he's here? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That was 2,000 years ago. Paul recognized lawlessness is already underfoot. It's already underway. It's already on the move in this world. It's already present in the lives and in the hearts of people. But then Paul wrote, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. In other words, we live in a world under restraint. Can you imagine what it will be like when the restraining influence of the spirit of the living God leaves this world? when the church through which he works is no longer present, when you look around and see the striving and the angst and the despair now, I can't even imagine when the restraint is taken off. But why doesn't he do something now? Don't worry, it, it, gets, it gets worse, verse 10. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I'm not gonna give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. 
but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them saying, complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? So the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your people. They're taking away what we need to do, what we've got to do. Verse 17, but he said, you are lazy, lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Literally, he says the word twice, you're lazy, lazy. The word in the Hebrew there is nirpim, and it means slackers. You're slackers, slackers. And I read that and I thought, who is this, Mr. Strickland? <laughs> You've always been a slacker, McFly, and you're just like your old man. Principal Strickland from Back to the Future, slacker. And Pharaoh is calling the people slackers. Get this, don't miss this. The flesh always sees worship as a waste of time. You wanna go worship? That's because you're lazy. You want to go sit in church? You're a slacker. You're wasting your time. The flesh always sees prayer as an extravagance, as spiritual loitering. Man, get back to work. There's stuff that needs to be done. And you're praying? Man, say a word or two and get back to it. Or, or pray while you're working. That, that's even better. Pray while you're making bricks. Best to get on with the day's work by the, spread of the sweat of the brow. I mean, that's the stuff of success, real success, right? Actually, that's the stuff of the curse. See, Genesis 3.19, God said to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And there is a contrast here of what Pharaoh understands in the flesh and what the Spirit is calling his people to, the Spirit of God, Yahweh is calling his people to come worship, come pray, come with me. And Pharaoh in the flesh is saying, work harder, do the work. And here's the contrast. The flesh sweats and labors and dies. The Spirit worships and rejoices and lives. And that's the choice. Some, remarkably, will even make church life, worship life, spiritual life, they will turn it into a drudgery. Now I point that out because there is a subtle spiritual warning here in the Hebrew language in verse nine. And it's fascinating to me, in verse nine, Pharaoh said, looking back, let the labor be heavier on the men. And that word labor in Hebrew is abodah, which means work or bondage. Let the bondage be harder, let the work, the labor be harder, or the word is also used to describe worship. Literally like a rite of worship or a service of worship or the the energy or, or 
work that goes into making worship happen. We see that in Numbers chapter three, verse seven. The Levites shall perform the duties for him for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service, Abodah, of the tabernacle. The work of the tabernacle. So I wanna ask you a spiritual question this morning, brothers and sisters. Which is it for you? Is it the service of the tabernacle or the labor of the taskmaster? Is your spiritual life the service of the tabernacle or the labor of the taskmaster? You see, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Man, it's the never-ending to-do list. To be a priest of Israel was to have the never-ending to-do list. You started over when you came into service for your time of service, you started over and you did the same thing you did before and it never did what you needed it to do. You never got the job done. It's like Friday at the end of the work week and you're looking at your to-do list and you've checked off one thing and everything else is gonna be waiting for you on Monday. But it's worse than that. It's coming in on Monday and even the one thing you checked off isn't checked off anymore. Gotta start over. That is the stuff of despair and despondency when all the work going into something never gets us where we need to go. You just can't finish. And what I'm saying to you all, please hear me, is religion is a taskmaster. Religion is a taskmaster. By the way, religion is not determined by church affiliation. It's not determined by church membership. You know, some might say, I'm an independent. I'm a non-denominational, non-conformist, independent Christian. I'm, you could say, an indie non-deformist. I don't do the denominational thing or I don't do the, the, this requirement. I, I, just, I go to an independent church, so I'm not religious, right? Well, the bridge is an independent, non-denominational church, non-conformist, I guess you could put it. There were a lot of people attracted in the early days simply because we met in a barn, not a building. People were like, I like that. Doesn't have all the trappings of church. You know what? We have religious people at the bridge. Oh, I'm offended. Don't, don't be offended. Let me just give you a simple test to know if you're religious. And by the way, I bet just about every person in our fellowship has at one time or another phased into and out of religion, had a religious spirit without even realizing it. Here's the simple test. Here's how you know if you're religious. How hard do you work to prove yourself to a God who you just know is gonna be disappointed in you anyway? Seems like no matter what I do, I'm still never gonna be good enough for him. And if that thought is in your thinking, you're religious. If it's, I got to do, I've got to perform, I've got to show, I have to follow through it becomes, worship becomes bondage rather than freedom, rather than a joy. Religion is a taskmaster. All our efforts to prove ourselves is simply working the religious brickworks. And there are an awful lot of Christians stuck on that treadmill. 
walking it out day by day, trying to do all the right things. I'm up early doing my devotions. I'm up early praying. Through the day, I'm writing out scriptures. Through the day, I'm in the Bible. I'm talking to the Lord. I'm trying to do what's right. I tell people about Jesus, you know, when I can. I'm there every time the doors are open to the church and I'm still despairing. That's because you're walking in religion rather than faith. By the way, all those things that I mentioned are good. Morning devotionals with the Lord, that's a good thing. But not if it's on your to-do list to check off. Prayer at any given time, relationship with God, that's good. But not if you're trying to show up to prove to him that you are worth saving. See, here's the irony. As far as the Lord is concerned, you are worth saving. Why? Because he loves you. But your work will never make you worth saving. It's religion. The flesh sweats and labors and dies. The spirit worships and rejoices and lives. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that while the priests never finished the to-do list, Jesus Verse 12, Hebrews 10, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and he sat down at the right hand of, the God, of God. Why'd he sit down? Because he was done. The to-do list is checked off. Nothing else to do. You know what that means? There's nothing for you to do but love God and enjoy him. Be with him. Follow after him. Listen to him. For by one offering, Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's done it. And so the work is not yours. How do I get out from under the taskmaster faith? You turn to God. Jesus is talking about a worship that is in spirit. It's not about appeasing flesh. It is about being in the spirit. It's loving and honoring a God who knows you and who loves you and who saved you by his grace. Which is why Jesus said, John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, that's the definition of a true worshiper. Don't get confused. The true worshiper, okay, that's the person that's got all the righteousness down, right? no. No, the true worshiper just shows up and worships God in spirit and truth. Worships God in real relationship. Worships God openly and honestly. Worships God recognizing I'm all about the flaws, but he is all about the perfection. I just come worship. Jesus said for such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm sitting here in the auditorium right now and it's completely empty. I mean, there are, there are four or five of us, but there are no chairs because Dean and, and Alice and Jane, they, they took the chairs and they, they shampooed them all. They got them out of here. They're gonna be doing the floors, trying to you know, make the building as antiseptic as possible. Although God made dirt and dirt don't hurt, but that's beside the point. So I'm sitting here looking at this big empty room and there are no chairs. Well, last night, Eva and her family came in here and they were doing a little behind the scenes work, getting ready for this morning and setting up the stuff that's behind me here, which is kind of cool. And they walked in and their youngest son, Zach and Eva's son, Jeffrey, came in and looked around. Jeff saw there were no chairs and it rattled him. He said, mom, I'm sad. 
why are you sad? He said, well, the, the chairs are all gone. And he goes, wait, how long until Jesus comes to take us home? And I love that. How long? What's the point? Hey, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And it doesn't matter if there's one chair or 350 chairs or 500 chairs. It doesn't matter if there's two people or 450 people. It, see, it's spirit and the truth. It's being with the Lord. Well, back to the text. So the taskmasters were heavy. The people are crying out. Things are not going well. And you gotta be wondering, wait, God called Moses. God confirmed Moses. God sends Moses to Pharaoh. And this is what happens. Verse 19. Sorry, verse, verse 18. So Pharaoh, continuing his rant, says, go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Verse 19, the foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce the daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord Look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've made us stink before Pharaoh. Now even the church is mad at Moses. Everybody's mad at Moses. The brethren are grumbling, and it won't be the last time. <laughs> but don't miss this. There is a little glimmer of hope here in their words. What do you mean? They're glum, they're grumbling, but at least there in verse 21, they're calling God by the right name. They say, may Yahweh look upon you. They're calling God by name. It's a tiny step, but it's one worth noting that they refer to him, God, as Yahweh. Sometimes we're looking for the big epic response. We're looking for the big deliverance and we miss the small moves of faith. Don't even realize that a shift has taken place in our own heart, in our own spirit. God's always working. God's always leading. And at this point, while his people are grumbling and despondent and upset, at least they're calling the right name Yahweh. Verse 22. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So the people grumble to Moses. Moses goes back to the Lord. That's gonna be a pattern for Exodus. He goes back to Yahweh. But what's interesting to me here is that while it says Moses returned to Yahweh, he does not call him Yahweh. He says, oh, Lord, Lord there is Adonah. So he refers to him, you know, at least with a, some modicum of respect. But he doesn't call him Yahweh. And we can say pretty assuredly right now that Moses' confidence is shaken. He's finding himself once again unsure. Oh, Lord. Why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Great. So here we are. The people are despondent. The deliverer is demoralized. Did God send Moses 
into Pharaoh this first time just to fail? And the answer is yes. Yes, he did. You think God didn't know this was gonna happen? You think he didn't know Pharaoh's heart and know that he was sending his deliverer in for an epic fail right at the outset of what was supposed to be a glorious, successful deliverance? But notice now the first word in chapter six, or the first word that the Lord speaks. The Lord said to Moses, now, now. I have that word circled in my Bible. Now, he says. Now, Moses, you have seen that you are indeed ineffective. Now you know You're out of your league. Now at least you understand you are in over your head. Maybe now you can really start to believe I am. I am. And by the way, now we're ready for this morning's teaching. Chapter six, verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. Listen, that phrase, that two-word phrase, under compulsion, it is literally by hand. By hand. I'm gonna do this by hand. Yahweh says by hand. By my hand, he's speaking. Pharaoh is going to get going. By my hand, he will drive them out of this land. By God's hand. And on the other side of the deliverance, Moses will actually say in Exodus 13, verse 9, with a powerful hand, you brought us out of Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt by hand. How big is God's hand? You ever think about that? The Bible says, Isaiah 45, verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it, I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. What kind of arm span would you have to have to stretch out the heavens by hand? The hand of God is mighty and strong. Psalm 89 verse 13, you have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. By the way, anytime the Bible says your right hand, there's a reference there, a subtle reference to Jesus. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness, that is grace and truth, go before you. Let me ask you, whose hands are right and just? That's a big part of all the protestations today. Whose hands are right and just? Is it Chaz? Is it the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone? Is that where justice truly rests, where true peace will finally be found? Hey, no one even knows who's really in charge there other than rapper Raz Simone. People are looking for justice. People are looking for things to be made Right, but from the streets of Seattle to the halls of the governors and presidents and prime ministers of the world, there is only one righteous hand. There is only one hand that can lead us forward in grace and truth. The hand of God is right. The hand of God is capable. The hand of God is true. First Peter 
Chapter five, verse six says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, some bold humanity would say, why should I humble myself? If you won't humble yourself because you don't understand why God deserves it, innately, inherently, he just deserves us to humble ourselves before him. But if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, at least humble yourself because his mighty hands were pierced for you. The hands that stretch the universe. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Jesus said, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because, Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does God allow these times of despondency and despair and demoralization as we see all over the world today. How does it come to this? Wednesday night, we waded through a miry bog of bogus excuses from Moses. We listened to him five different times try to talk God out of calling him to be a deliverer. He said, I'm inadequate. And then he said, I'm ignorant. And then now, well, we have proof he's ineffective. And then he said, I'm inarticulate. You know what the last thing was that Moses expressed? Indifference. Indifference. You know what Moses is not anymore? He's not indifferent. You can see this in his language. His whatever that he spoke to the Lord before is now at least a semi-compassionate why. Note that back in chapter five. Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people, he says. He now has a concern for the people. Didn't see that before. There's compassion seeping into Moses. And he's whining, truly, he's whining to the Lord here at the beginning of chapter six. <laughs> but at least there's a little fire in his belly now. At least he's not just indifferent to the cause. God knows what he's doing. And listen closely, we are now closing in on the answer for the discouraged and the depressed and the dejected, so catch this. J. Alec Mottier, who I've come to really appreciate as a Bible scholar, in fact, he once said, Mottier said, uh, I, I'm no scholar, I'm just a man who loves the word of God. And he said, Moses emerged from this experience with no confidence for the task and no hope of success coming his way. The Lord had not solved Moses' problems by changing Moses. 
either inwardly in feelings or temperament or outwardly in effectiveness. He says the whole intent of the Lord had been in an entirely different direction. He did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart new boldness to him. You know what God did? He calls Moses to a position of absolute reliance on I am. He leaves nothing else that can work. See, what we do in our lives, and this is what I do, so maybe you don't, but this is what I do. I cry out, God, help me be a more patient man. I say, God, make me more resilient. And he says, Rick, come to me. I say, solve the problem in my distress. Change my circumstances. And he says, Rick, trust me. But no, Lord, how can I trust you? Nothing's changing. Listen, rather than fixing either Moses or his circumstances, God brings the depressed deliverer right back to I am. And that's the answer. Now, He's ready for the second divine revelation of Yahweh, verse two, and God spoke further to Moses and said to him, and here's my answer, here's the answer God gives Moses when he brings the complaint, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. In the Hebrew, literally, Ani Yahweh. Lord, it's not working. Lord, it's failed. Lord, the people are upset. Lord, why did you send me? I am Yahweh. That's the answer. And we know it every time Moses comes with a complaint, God answers with, I am. God is awakening Moses. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before. I was having a nightmare. I was a kid of seven or eight years old and I couldn't wake up. It was just one of those weird things. I was crying, my dad came into my room. I was just was kind of inconsolable and I wasn't awake and I wasn't alert. I was kind of half asleep, half awake, still dreaming, still uncertain of where I was. Just a weird little kid moment. My dad took me all the way into the bathroom and turned the light on and, and got a washcloth. He was washing the tears off my face and trying to help me just to wake up. My dad was a little concerned. Because in my incoherence, I kept telling him that he was my friend's father. I kept saying, you're Todd Hess's father. I don't even know what Todd Hess is doing these days. Hope he's saved. You're Todd Hess's father. And my dad kept saying over and over, he knew I needed to recognize him. He kept saying, who am I? And I kept saying, you're Todd Hess's father. Who am I? You're Todd Hess's father. Who am I? And finally, I broke and I said, you're my father. And he grabbed me and he hugged me and I woke up. And that's what's happening with Moses. Who am I? Remember Jesus asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? My friends, we are in a nightmare until we wake up to who I am, to who God is. Life is not gonna get better. Despair and despondency and depression will reign until we wake up to who I am. Who am I, he says, you're my father. God is awakening Moses to this very truth, to who I am Yahweh, which is why he allowed the failure in the first place, so that Moses would have to come back to and recognize I am. You can't do this, but I can. 
And when we understand that, when I can say, I can't, but he can, therefore, I will. You see, God gives you an assignment, calls you to a task, puts before you some service. And when we recognize, I can't do it, but he can, that's when we awaken. That's when we can say, all right, I will. And that's the whole point that Moses and the people of God, their deliverance, guess what? Their deliverance was secondary to knowing I am. He was primary, that they would know that I am is the one that would lead them out. That's why, by the way, the, the final I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. The last one, listen to it again, John 15, five, Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we try so hard to do so much without him. No wonder it fails. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then God says, verse three, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now we've talked about this before, that while the name Yahweh probably was previously heard, we see it in Genesis a few times, while it was heard, it was not known. It was not understood. While El Shaddai paid visits, in dreams and visions and even revelations from time to time, his promise was yet future. His immediate presence was not for then. It was later. It was still to come. But now, now, listen, now both are here. Both what? Both his promises and his presence are gonna be immediate with the people. Watch this, verse four. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians who are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. I made the promise then. Now's the time for the follow through. And now God does this. He unloads the substance of the covenant promises. Right here in this second revelation to Moses, he says, watch this, verse six, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. Okay, so Moses heard it. Remember, that's the first thing God said to respond to Moses. I am Yahweh, Ani Yahweh. Say it now, Moses, to the sons of Israel. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh, wow, two verses, and yet in these two verses, three actually, six, seven, and eight, there are seven I will verbs, 
Seven times God says, I will. And he frames them three times by saying, Ani Yahweh, I am the Lord. I will seven times. I am Yahweh three times. He says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the promised land and I will give it to you for a possession. How? I will because I am, I am, I am. I am Father. I am Son. I am Holy Spirit. Three I am statements. Three times I am the Lord. Yahweh, three times. Three is the number of resurrection, or we could put it this way, three is the number of failing to succeed. Failing to succeed. You see, to you and me, failure is despairing. To God, failure is the road to divine spiritual success. Failure is the realization that I need the revelation of God in my life if I'm gonna go anywhere, achieve anything. How did the disciples feel on the weekend that Jesus' body lay in the tomb? I can tell you in one word, despondent, depressed, despairing, epic fail, it was all over. And what they failed to understand was that what looked like a failure on Friday was success on Sunday. And you had to go through the failure to get to the success. The failure, the ministry was over. Jesus was crucified, all his beautiful, eloquent words, all the miracles done. Failure. Really? Look at where we are 2,000 years later. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the faith in Jesus Christ that changed the world for eternity, changed humanity, gave us the reality of our redemption. By the way, did you notice the third I will promise of God there in in verse six? I will also redeem you. And from this point on, this is only the second time the word redeem, redemption is even used in the Bible. First time Jacob spoke it. But now we see, and from this point on, redemption becomes a major theme running through the scriptures and through all of history. It begins right here. Redemption, I will redeem you as the central glorifying work of God, ultimately realized in the redemption price that is paid by Jesus on the cross. Failing to succeed. My failure brings me to Ani Yahweh, I am the Lord. And then comes the success of his glory. Now, we're not out of the woods yet. Verse nine, Moses does go to the people after hearing this from God himself. And I'm sure spiritually charged up, spiritually refocused, spiritually reset on I am, but he goes to the people. Verse nine, he spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. And who can blame them? They didn't hear God directly. They heard from God through Moses. They saw the failure. Now Moses is back. They're like Thomas. They're like Thomas at the end of 
the weak, who hadn't seen Jesus resurrected, who just said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and his feet, you can't ask me to believe that. Such was the despair in Thomas. Thomas was a strong, faithful man and later on would go on to be martyred for his faith in Jesus. But in that moment, Thomas just, he didn't have the heart. He was despondent. And I want you to note this. It's the last Hebrew word I'm gonna give you (laughs) this morning. Despondency is actually two words in Hebrew. Two words, it's kotzer ruach. Literally, shortness of breath or shortness of spirit. Despondency is shortness of breath. I can't breathe. Ooh, that's a rally cry, isn't it? I can't breathe. I don't know if there's intent behind this spiritually or not, but I find it fascinating that on the one hand, George Floyd's statement of I can't breathe has become a rally cry of protesters saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And at the same time, COVID-19 is causing people to die because they can't breathe. Whether it's just for us to get this morning or there's a bigger statement going out, listen, despondency is shortness of spirit. It's shortness of breath. I can't breathe. Proverbs 18, 14 in the Amplified says the strong spirit of a man sustains him in bodily pain or trouble. The strong spirit. You know how you get a strong spirit? By the mighty hand of God. By his spirit within you, the spirit is strong and you can walk through despair and despondency. But man, a weak and broken spirit, the Bible says, who can raise up or bear? Moses couldn't. Spirit of this people was short. Shortness of spirit, they couldn't breathe. Moses could not get them to that point. You know what? I can't either. I can't do that. I can't fill up your lungs. I can't pour into your spirit. I can speak the word of God. I can teach the Bible. And yet I know on any given Sunday or Wednesday or Bible study, there are those listening who are having trouble hearing on account of their own despondency, on account of your own shortness of breath or spirit. I can't breathe. How how do you expect me to hear God's word when I'm having trouble even breathing? You know, the people, at least here in verse nine, they couldn't hear, they couldn't receive from Moses, what they needed was to hear it from the Lord. And if you're despondent this morning, what you need is to go to the Lord. I can't do it for you. I struggle at times just doing it myself. When that depression sets in, man, you don't wanna do anything but wallow. What we need to do is what Moses did Look at it again back in verse 22 of chapter five. Then Moses returned to the Lord. That's how it works. I failed miserably. Then you return to the Lord. It all fell apart. Then you return to the Lord. The bottom dropped out. Then you return to the Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon struggled with depression 
his entire ministry life. There's another thing a lot of people don't realize. He struggled with chronic depression. Not just when the roof caved in as a 22-year-old successful preacher whose ministry was shaken, but throughout his long ministry, his booming career, his glorious, this prince of preachers, he suffered depression. And Spurgeon himself in letters to his students said, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him. And if he falls, I shall fall with him. If he does not, I shall not. Because he lives, I shall live also. And I spring to my legs again and fight with my depressions of spirit and get the victory through it. And so may you do, and so you must, for there is no other way of escaping from it. Moses returned to Yahweh and to the despondent. God says, Ani Yahweh, I am the Lord. To the despairing, God says, I am, I am. And to the demoralized, God says, return to me. I am all you need. I am, we pray to you this morning. And we recognize that these are dark times. That we are living through times where despair is spilling out all over the streets. Where despondency is causing people to turn inward. Where depression is affecting not just cities or, or states, not just communities or, or countries, but the entire world seems to be suffering from the despair of hopelessness. Father, your message to us, may we hear this morning. May the shortness of breath, may those who are short in spirit, who have been hurt, who have been in bondage, who have struggled for release, may we all together, Lord, hear you say, I am the Lord. And cause us, Lord Jesus, to return to you. I wanna pray right now, Father, for the depressed among us, for those who are despairing in this time, who are looking around and realizing in this world there is no hope, or as you said, Lord Jesus, in this world you will have tribulation. Help us hear you, Lord. When you said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Lord Jesus, by a strong and mighty hand, would you encourage and comfort your people? Father, by a strong and mighty hand, would you save the lost? Lord, to the person or persons listening this morning, who finds despair in this world to be the bottom line, who doesn't have a relationship with you. We pray for their salvation right now. If that's you, would you just pray with me wherever you are? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm hopeless. And I need you. I can't breathe in this world anymore. And I 
pray that you would forgive me of my sin and you would come reign over me as Lord of my life and you would fill up my lungs with your spirit so that I can breathe again, so that I can be born again, so that I can be with you for eternity. For I believe that you are the Christ, son of the living God. I take you this morning as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Whatever need you have, return to the Lord this morning. 